to celebrate our changemakers. Watch out for more of them at the start of sessions tomorrow and Thursday. As you saw, Nikki Lilly unfortunately can't be with us again this evening. As soon as she's well enough, this spot will always be open for her. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to Rio and Sam for standing in at short notice. Congratulations, Rio, for winning Got What It's Take and singing on Radio One Big Weekend. So, in the words of our conference theme, what's next? Um, hopefully, one day I'd like to sell out arenas and inspire people to do things that they love, I guess. We love ambition. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Sam, what are your ambitions? What's next for you? So next year I'm going to Imperial College to study design engineering um, to become a product designer, basically. Fantastic. Thank you both very much indeed for getting off to such an inspiring start. Sam and Rieliana.
welcome everyone to CMC 2018. I'm Sue Knott, the CMC Advisory Committee Chair, and this evening my role is to thank you for coming to this 15th Children's Media Conference here in Sheffield, which has more sessions and speakers than ever, and over 1,100 delegates attending. Right at the outset, I want to thank all our sponsors, and in particular, the sponsor of this keynote, Sheffield-based animation studio, Finger Industries. They do so much for CMC, including supporting the one-to-one -one meetings that run right through the conference and the fun CMC party tomorrow night. <laughs> they've, supported us, they've supported us for a number of years, so it's pleasing to hear that last year they secured a deal right here at CMC, and the show is in production now. It can happen. So the two days ahead bring all sorts of prospects. We hope you'll enjoy and be stimulated by the conversation and debate as we ask, what's next? Just before looking forward, though, I'd like to look back just for a moment. On Sunday, we heard the sad news that Peter Furman has died at the age of 89. Peter is best known for his work with Oliver Postgate on animations which charmed children and adults for generations. Noggy and the Nog, Ivor the Engine, Pogleswood, Bagpuss, The Clangers, and more. Titles which are part of the cultural history of the UK, not just children's television. And less well-known is that he co-created Basil Brush. <laughs> we had a proposal from a delegate, and I completely agree. Let's give Peter the send-off that the industry owes him, and let's not make it a silent one. Peter, that applause says it all. So now our opening keynote speaker has to follow that. <laughs> Fortunately, he needs almost no introduction. He's been talking to kids and performing his poems for them for over 40 years. And not just talking to them, also listening, stimulating their imaginations, putting the world before them from his uniquely questioning perspective. And most importantly, he's made them laugh, consistently and passionately for all that time. He's one of the best-known figures in the children's book world as a poet, writer, and a former children's laureate. As adults, we know him as broadcaster and columnist, and as a champion for creativity and imagination in the face of what he calls data-driven education. Michael Rosen was born in Harrow to a Jewish family in 1946. His parents were both teachers, whom Michael describes as very funny, humorous people who loved jokes, stories, and songs, filling his head with all kinds of words and expressions from a very young age. Although Michael's known for his children's poetry, including <coughs> excuse me, favorites such as Quick, get, Let's Get Out of Here, Little Rabbit Foo Foo, and We're Going on a Bear Hunt, which is now a hugely successful animation, that's not how he started out. He originally expected to be a doctor, and started training before deciding it wasn't for him. So he switched to an English degree in Oxford. In the late 60s, students were at the forefront of campaigns for freedom and rights. Michael was arrested twice for demonstrating against the Vietnam War, and again for demonstrating against a hairdresser who wouldn't cut black people's hair. After university, he went to the BBC as a trainee, finding his way to the children's department to work on play school and then the education department. But although programmes wanted Michael to work for them, he couldn't get a permanent job because of his political background. So in 1972, Michael went freelance, and generations of children and their parents have reaped the benefit of his creative freedom. Since writing his first children's book, Mind Your Own Business, in 1974, Michael's written or contributed to more than 200 books. He has co-devised and co-teaches a master's degree at Goldsmiths, University of London, where he's professor of children's literature in the education department. He's a familiar voice to BBC radio listeners presenting Word of Mouth, the programme that looks at the English language and the way we use it. 
and he visits schools with his one-man show to infuse children with his passion for books and poetry. He was one of the first poets, in fact, to make visits to schools throughout the UK, and he's also visited schools throughout the world. More recently, Michael Rosen has become a YouTube phenomenon, with over 240,000 subscribers and 50 million-plus views of his content. The internet has given him access to an audience he could never have imagined as a young BBC trainee on play school. But it comes with a darker side, including mashups of his videos. And as a parent of a teenager, he's acutely aware of the creative opportunities offered by the internet alongside the perils of social media. When we first asked Michael what he wanted to talk about at CMC, his response was suitably couched in metaphor. He talked about the sense of creative freedom and audience connection his first experience of the internet gave him. I thought I was riding the crest of the digital wave, he wrote, only to discover that what I was riding was a tiger. A tiger with an insatiable appetite and an audience only too eager to be eaten. It's something we've all come to understand. So, Michael, what do we do? Welcome, Michael Rosen. Thank you, Sue. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And it was lovely to see Peter up there, Peter Furman. I was very lucky to uh, work with Peter on a, a Teaching to Read series at BBC Schools TV uh, called Sam on Boffs Island, uh, which um, not only had uh, Peter's wonderful puppets, uh, Oliver Postgate's wonderful animations, um, but also it was the first appearance, I believe, of um, Tony Robinson and Miriam Margolis in the same series. Um, I think possibly Tony Robinson's first proper TV appearance. So there we are. So it was wonderful to see Peter, and it reminded me of going down to Oliver Postgate's house. Uh, you know, he shot the whole thing on two trestle tables, and he had a little Bolex camera that was lashed up with string, and he used to stand there winding it in order to get the track shots, and then he moved the clangers around on top of the table. It's extraordinary. whole thing shot like that. In his garage, it was freezing cold. Anyway, <laughs> talking of old, old styles and old ways of uh, making movies, I thought I'd begin with Buster Keaton. But thank you first, Sue. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, wonderful introduction. Thank you. So I'm going to start with Buster Keaton. Uh, and do you remember that movie where he rides two cars at the same time? Do you remember that? He has one foot on one car, one on the other. And at times, it seems as if the cars are going to pull him apart. So let's hold that picture in our mind for a moment. I won't act it out. And I'm going to suggest <laughs> that Keaton is really the child we are all interested in, the child we are all talking about. The child, if you like, is Keaton. One car I'm going to suggest is school, and the other is us in the children's media and perhaps the rest of the media. The child goes forward but is tugged from either side. We're worried about the child, and then we ask ourselves, will the child be damaged? As you can see, this image I've conjured up of a child is different from some of the more conventional ones. Like, say, seeing the child as progressing through life in stages. In education, that would be the child on board a car, growing and learning as she goes forward, or making progress, as we say. Nor is it the old image of the child and the media. Perhaps I'm showing my BBC colours here, sitting on board the media car, progressing from preschool shows and cartoons onto children's TV, and then finally onto adult TV and the World Cup. Mind you, <laughs> I know, just keep an eye on the time. Yes. I'll speed up if necessary, OK? Mind you, even if we think of sitting in the media car, perhaps we never really did progress in such an ordered way anyway. I think about this from the point of view of the watcher and listener. The media has never really been something we went through in stages. Even back in the 1950s, when I was a kid, I would dash home from school to listen to BBC Children's Hour's Eagle of the Ninth by Rosemary Sutcliffe, now a movie. But at other times, I was also listening to adult shows like, don't get excited, Workers' Playtime, <laughs> Arthur Askey, and The Goon Show. Aha. Later at night, my brother and I could even go to our room and fiddle with something called a crystal set and listen to Elvis. And what was more dangerous than Elvis? So, no matter how much our work seems ring-fenced as 
children's or educational or youth, that's not actually how the media are consumed by young audiences, is it? We know that. And same goes for school. No matter how much we, as parents, teachers, or media practitioners see school as a bubble, children themselves, of course, are flowing between home, school, all levels of media, consuming it all, reflecting on it all, most importantly, flowing between it all, using the experience in one area to inform another. There are, in fact, very few walls. Of course, we have to beaver away in our four children bubbles as if there are walls. Our output is regulated and self-regulated by appropriateness. Every day we deal with whether it's okay or not okay to say this, wear that, write this, show this, not too much of that, and so on. So no matter what our memories of our own childhoods, no matter what our own children say and do, at home, on the bus, in the playground, in the street, there's stuff that we, the program makers, writers, and performers, don't do. Ultimately, this is because we are saying, and we have to say, we are a safe place. If your child comes into this playground that all of us make, your child will be safe. We agree to abide by these rules. But is this a problem? I'll throw this one in the air early on. Might it be that because of its required safety, we can only deal with some of the stuff that is bothering and worrying the child and not all of it? And as we know, some of this stuff is right there on the news only a few minutes later from when we were keeping them safe with the things that we make and write. Or just as likely, it's things going on in the home, sadly, or the street, or the school, outside. We know that on the few occasions the children's output does tackle things coming under the headings of things like stuff in the news or in their street that might be bothering kids, we run the risk of howls of rage and anxiety being heaped on us from people who claim they are guarding the innocence of children. Ironically, they may be the very same people covering the fronts of their newspapers or news programs with precisely the sort of things that are so worrying. Haven't we just seen a huge amount of coverage, and no bad thing, of a country famed for its adherence to freedom and justice, separating children from their parents, and putting the children into caged compounds? Will, it, will any of us be tackling the human politics of that one in our output? And if we do, perhaps some of you did, and I missed it, will we be told off for doing it? Will we have to see it from both sides of the question, whatever that is. I think we have to push hard to take on these subjects, artistically, in documentaries, anyway. Perhaps we even need a study group on it. <laughs> so let's never be afraid of saying that no matter how much we talk about watersheds or parental filters and movie certification, that is not actually the media world as consumed by most children. Their watching and reading flows between many outputs, and our output is not always allowed to tackle some of the problem areas that children find themselves watching. I could think of several ways in which we could do that, perhaps, but maybe we have to leave that for another time. By the way, I've just finished a writing job in which I've written a story set in the here and now that is a parallel story to Oliver Twist. Now, if you know the original story, think for a moment about the abuse, murder, crime, racism, implied sex, and child exploitation that there is in the original. And then think, how much of that do you think I could keep in <laughs> in my modern version? And given that I did keep some of it, because I do think fiction like this does enable children and young people to deal with the awful stuff going on, on some children's doorsteps. How do you rate my chances that anyone could serve it up in a media slot for children? I'll leave that hanging in the air. <laughs> but let me get back to my image of Buster Keaton riding the two cars. I want to describe what I think is at the very least a headache for the child. Perhaps it's more than a headache, because we're all interested in children's headaches. I will stray away from the world of media for the moment and think about education and education media. After all, according to my metaphor, the foot that Buster's got on the education car is connected via his legs and body to the foot on the media car. 
That is, whatever is going on in one part of a children's life affects another part. So what's going on in education that might be impacting on our Keaton-like child? Or to be more media-centred, what's going on in the way children and young people are being educated that might be impacting on the media-consuming child? Since the time everyone in this hall was educated, there have been big changes in English education. I've tried to describe it like this. Guide to education. You get education in schools. To find out how much education you get, the government gives you tests. Before you do the tests, the government likes it if you're put on different tables that show how well or badly you're going to do in the tests. <laughs> the tests test whether they've put you on the right table. <laughs> the tests tests whether you know what you're supposed to know. But don't try to get to know any old stuff like what is earwax or how to make soup. The way to know things you're supposed to know is to do pretend tests. When you do the pretend tests, you learn how to think in the way that tests want you to think. The more practice you do, the more likely it is that you won't make the mistake of thinking in any other way other than in the special test way of thinking. Here's an example. The apples are growing on the tree. What is growing on the tree? If you say leaves, you're wrong. <laughs> it's no use you thinking that when apples are on a tree, there are usually leaves on the tree too. There is only one answer, and that is apples. All other answers are wrong. If you are the kind of person that thinks leaves is a good answer, doing lots and lots and lots of practice tests will get you to stop thinking that leaves <laughs> is a good answer. Doing many, many practice tests will also make it very likely that there won't be time for you to go out and have a look at an apple tree. <laughs> Just in case you see what else grows on apple trees, like ants or mistletoe. Education is getting much better these days because there is much more testing. Remember, it's apples, not leaves. Thank you. And then I followed it up. Thank you. Then I followed up with this one, and I called this one, The Data Have Landed. First, they said they needed data about the children to find out what they're learning. Then they said they needed data about the children to make sure they're learning. Then the children only learnt what could be turned into data. Then the children became data. I believe that a fundamental shift is taking place in what is expected of children who attend state schools in England. On the one hand, the schools are in the grip of what I believe is a test-crazy regime run by exam junkies, people who devote huge amounts of time and money to giving what are called summative tests, the ones at the end of it, summation of, test, of, of the course, rather than diagnostic formative tests designed to help the child. What's more, a new so-called knowledge-rich or knowledge curriculum has overloaded teachers and children with such great chunks of knowledge that there isn't enough time in school or in the usual time span of two or three years to teach it. So great shelf loads of it have to be shoveled into homework and shoved further downwards towards younger and younger children. That's the time, of course, when we here are trying to say to those children, come over here and look at what we're offering. Fun, entertainment, stuff to think about and wonder about or relax with. There are times when, say, 11 or 12-year-olds are being thrust from something that they don't understand to something that they can understand but can't remember to something that they might understand and might remember if only there were enough minutes left in the day to get round to it. What's more, schools are being nudged and blackmailed into spending more time on what they call the core and less time on, guess what, all the arts and indeed less time on anything, as I've suggested, that doesn't produce data. You know the sort of thing, school trips, school plays, reading for pleasure, the kind of stuff that coexists very well with our output. And if you're not doing really well in either or both English or maths, there's even a bias away from spending time doing anything else that you're really keen on. That's because they've raised the bar for those two subjects. If you want to do more study after the age of 16, you have to spend more time on those two subjects. 
Again, that might well be less time on the arts and technology. Meanwhile, down at the other end, our very youngest audiences are being talked about only very recently, last few months, by those in control in education as if their play is too often aimless. <laughs> that they're not doing enough things which impart knowledge. We are talking about three and four-year-olds here, okay? <laughs> and they're not sitting down and listening to teachers enough. They're not being instructed enough. That's our preschool audience. Now, you might detect here that one old idea about education, educating the whole child, is being dispensed with. You might also detect something else, a species that was, heaven knows, endangered enough anyway, is under even greater threat, the questioning mind. Whether it's minimizing the amount of time spent setting up science experiments and discussing outcomes, whether it's cutting out debating the use of different sources in history, whether it's removing debate about interpretations of books and the use of language from children and younger secondary school students, or whether it's the slow but steady suppression of media studies, yes, our stuff, and media criticism, it all points towards an idea of education, that education is about the transmission of authority. Of course people keep saying, no, 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 it's about transmission of knowledge. I insist that the basic core knowledge being transmitted here is obedience to authority. As if they're saying, hey kids, it's not your place to be wasting time questioning what we put in front of you. It's not your place to come up with ways of interpreting the world. And even if you might think it is, there isn't time. <laughs> so why am I saying this here? This is a media fest, not an education conference. Well, remember that image of Buster Keaton's feet? It's not only his feet that are on both cars, he has to keep his mind on his feet, on both of them. What I'm saying is that there is a major effort going on to change the child's mind, the child who we are talking to through our outputs. To succeed in what education is doing, there is right now much more requirement directed at many more children and young people than ever before to accept what is given. Yes, I've said it, I think the new education system is not simply an attempt to change education, I think it's an attempt to change the child. And that's relevant to all of us here. It's also a system geared more than ever before to grading and ranking children, which means for many it's about successfully producing failure. For exam boards, producing the right number of failures is a success. I hope I'm not revealing a state secret. Well, actually, I hope that I am, but anyway. When I say that the tests and exams that our children sweat for are rigged, it's not sufficient to get your questions right. That's what's called criterion referencing. No, instead, the marks of the exam papers have to be geared and rigged so that they fit what has been preordained, pre-decreed as the correct-looking distribution curve, the so-called bell curve kinds of questions that are set, the way the marking is tweaked, the way the grades are distributed are all done to fit the curve. This is called norm referencing. Last year, when they found that the maths paper they'd set was too hard, they lowered the pass mark. The exact right number of fails, passes and distinctions is preordained. And the great thing about breeding a lack of questioning is that the exam system, that great octopus that spreads its tentacles over the whole of education, can't be questioned because it itself is perfect, supposedly. It is, again, supposedly the perfect way to judge and grade people, and you can't question whether constant judging and grading is a good thing either. It just is, like the sky or death. <laughs> now, people express great alarms about the media and, indeed, what has been called addiction to certain kinds of media. I heard my old friend Biban Kidron expressing this view on the radio the other day. Okay, I'll say this. Before we get alarmed about that, I think we need to think about this problem more holistically. More about the whole Buster Keaton and not just the one side, the media side. Before we decide that we adults should be doing things to stop some kind of childhood addiction, let's ask some questions about what another bunch of adults, very official people in suits mostly, are doing in the very places that ought to be enabling children, young people and all of us, to make criticisms and judgments about what we watch, how much we watch, ask questions of themselves, 
why they watch this or that. Isn't that at least in part what education should be for? So before we beat ourselves up over addiction to what we produce, let's at least ask ourselves the question about what kind of child is it that ends up being addicted and why? What kind of child may not have the resources to question their addiction and why not? We should be asking questions of education here, not just questions of the media. For nearly 50 years, some of my work has been in the education sector of the media. As you heard, schools radio, schools TV, and lately on my son, Joe Rosen, who's here, Joe Rosen's, and my YouTube channel, which is in its own way a direct outcome of all those years' work. I think then that the new curriculum and the new modes of work and the new burdens of testing raise a question for us particularly those of us who work in educational media in the broadest sense of the word. Instead of purely jumping when the DFE, Department for Education, says jump, instead of fitting the demands of the exam boards, what can any of us, let's ask this, what can any of us in any part of young people's media, educational, entertainment, network, digital, do to encourage and foster the questioning, the critical and the creative? whether that's in the arts, sciences, or technologies. What can we do that not only questions the authority out there in the world, but also questions the very authority that is imposing itself so heavily on children and young people within education? Do we produce media for children and young people that has within itself ways which enable its audience to question whatever it is that's being thrown at children, including our own work? I think that's a task we can set ourselves. We have to set ourselves. Apart from anything else, remember, no one in charge of anything knows what life, work, and leisure is going to be like in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, 30 years' time. So let's give the young the right and ability to question. So now let's look more closely at some of the things going on across this very varied and diverse media landscape. Whatever people say what's wrong with Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and the rest, let's remember that these new or not so new media are also creating a new way for people of all ages to consume the media. As I said, there are no walls. One way people of all ages are now consuming the media is by immediately voicing their skepticism. Here's one very simple example amongst millions. The other night, the ex-West Ham manager, Billich, indicated on mainstream media that it was good to see that in the second half of the Germany-Sweden game, the German team behaved like a panzer division, at which he turned his hand into a fist and punched his other hand. Almost immediately, Twitter was full of people wondering if they really had heard what Bilic had said, or indeed what, say, for example, Polish people in the TV audience might think of Bilic's phrase as an approving metaphor, and so on. You can all think of countless examples of ways in which the front-running media, the media that speak with so much authority, are questioned and shredded by others in the digital media. One old critique of the media, and I think I may even have heard myself saying some of this years ago, is that for all its populism and massifying of audiences, it also fragmented and atomized us. We each sat, we used to say, in our hermetically sealed living rooms, consuming messages from two main broadcasters. There was, we said, a strange, non-social, passive quality about how we consumed this very popular form. Now, everything that is said by authority and with authority can be questioned and chewed over by hundreds, thousands, sometimes millions, passing messages to each other without necessarily engaging with the original source. New media have invented, in other words, mass lateral conversations. Instead of what we got with the last technological invention, the vertical conversation, the phone-in. Again, lateral conversations pose a challenge for us here. At present, this process takes place mostly, not entirely, in adult forums, not at all constrained by the ideas of appropriateness that we, in children's media, have to work with. Yet the only people who can stop or try to stop a child going on, say, Twitter, is a parent. I'm aware that some people we do call children follow me on Twitter. 
where one moment I might be talking about nursery rhymes, and the next, torture in the Iraq war, where people are saying, expletive this, expletive that. On the other hand, now that my son Joe has opened up a comments thread under our videos on our YouTube channel, in order to make it safe and appropriate, he moderates it. If not, the followers of mine who make mashups of our videos, the guys who make what they call YTPs, that's YouTube poops, will post streams of Beavis and Butthead type gags. So here's the dilemma, the challenge if you like. Here I am trying to produce media content that does any or all of the following. Take the experience of childhood, seriously, even if I'm being funny about it. Take the experience of being parented and schooled, seriously. Satirizing it, maybe. Critiquing it in child-accessible ways, funny ways. Producing material that probably no mainstream media would take, and yet is appropriate enough for me to perform in schools and at book festivals. But when it comes to opening up the digital gates to children's own comments, we've made the decision it has to be patrolled or policed by Joe. Hopefully, though, not so policed, not so patrolled that it inhibits the kind of questioning that I talked about earlier. But is there something here for all of us? How good are we at providing, maybe some of you are, online forums for children to question and challenge the world around them? How can this be done whilst safeguarding them against those who try to prey on them and abuse them? As you all know, online is a largely unlicensed medium. No one said Joe and I could not set up a video channel. No one said that we couldn't open up a comments thread. No one said that we had to moderate it. I know that many of the children who find their way to our channel come without any parental control. No filters on their computers. Joe and I are confident that we can defend what we do, but there's no escaping the fact that the same child who Joe and I are in a sense policing might be watching anything at all. Any kind of stuff that society usually thinks of as, say, inappropriate, uh, just a minute later. YouTube even suggests that they do exactly that, with their nudges to viewers to keep watching. They sometimes suggest one of these mashups as the next thing to watch. There's no escaping the fact that the child may well find that stuff more interesting, more intriguing, yes, perhaps more scary, more disturbing, but nevertheless more, more worth watching than our self-policed stuff. And something else, these places that the technology has invented have handed over aspects of the most powerful media of the day to the consumer. I grew up in a time when we watched TV but couldn't produce it. In fact, I wasn't sure that I was even allowed to switch it on. <laughs> My dad used to sit there and go, let's watch this. In fact, I'm not sure he got out of the seat. I think my mum then had to do it. <laughs> you just keep your tuchus in the chair the whole time. Tuchus, bum. With photography, yes, we could look at newspaper photos and take photos ourselves, but unless we were very rich, it was with inferior equipment. When the tape recorder first came along, it was great, but it didn't enable us to make records, vinyls that is, or radio. What has happened, which is new and is the greatest adventure and challenge of all, is that it's incredibly easy for almost everyone to produce media content. When a guy with no training of any kind, in front of or behind the camera, no training of either, can generate audiences of millions by putting online his spontaneous reactions to sport, then you know we're in a new era. In financial terms, this is a bigger challenge to all of us in the room than the ethical ones. I think we all know that we're at one of those moments where cultural and artistic production is going through a fully-fledged paradigm shift. Yes, akin to the invention of the printing press, which, let's remember, involved and still involves all over the world big, big questions about who owns the written world, who owns the companies that produce the written world, and who has the right to control them. Now, new media giants, not the old radio and TV companies, but the digital giants have made a technology, yes, that allows us all to speak to each other, provoke each other, show each other our creative and artistic and documentary output without any intervention from government, and with very little commercial interference, even from the digital companies themselves. But the reason why what a big irony, is because this new technology has enabled the owners to employ us for nothing. 
the public slave away, I use that word advisedly, slave away putting up content, everything from our comments threads to fully-fledged films, for which the payment is nothing more than the number of likes and reposts. It is not only a new form of mass creativity, it's also a new form of slavery. And all this can and does involve children. I'm guessing that pretty nearly all of you here are in paid employment. Sorry if I'm making assumptions there. <laughs> Many of the people whose attention you're competing with for viewing time are unpaid. One of them is me. <laughs> no one pays me or Joe to produce our channel. It has had nearly 50 million views. That's time we stole from all of you paid guys, <laughs> for which we got nothing. Okay, a couple of years ago, Joe said we should monetize the site. Don't laugh, it pays us just about enough to go out for a couple of family meals a month. Okay, not nothing, that was not true, next to nothing. We run it at a loss. And another thing, because this is a playground for all, anyone can come along and see our content and chop it up into new content. You can do this on your laptop. You can create mashups and memes and GIFs. Screen grabs, you can lay over captions, images. It's like the dream of the great photo montage artists of the 1930s come true. Everyone can be a John Hartfield. And if you like Beavis and Butthead gags, you can take Michael Rosen and lay over burps, farts, sex gags, and get audiences of millions. When angry parents write to me to complain that I'm in some way responsible for this, I explain that A, I'm not, B, there's nothing I can do about it. C, why are parents allowing children to roam unsupervised around the internet? Which indeed was the very argument that the YouTube poopers put to me 10 years ago when at first I objected to what they were doing. But you might not only be Beavis and Butthead. You might be someone who thinks that the Holocaust is funny, that Auschwitz is comedic, in which case you can chop up the face and voice of this Jewish bloke, Rosen, and have him saying, gas the Jews to, sound, to the sound of that jazzy Jewish tune, Havanagila. And a seven-year-old roaming around YouTube looking for more funny poems by Michael Rosen can easily watch this and indeed think, perhaps, that in some way or another, I made it. I approve of it. This is my joke. So it must be okay. So what do we do about this? I don't think we should be thinking about killing the golden goose that is unleashing mass creativity. I certainly think that my old friends education and educational media need a massive gear change, I'm back with Buster Keaton now, so that we equip children and young people much more to be able to question the stuff that's coming to them, question what the other foot is doing, if you like, yeah, and to save their state of mind, if you like, from the education treadmill. But I'm pretty sure that there's something else that we're going to have to do from our side. You media companies here that produce output for children have, of course, discovered that you can't stay aloof from new media. You have to produce online content because that's where the audience is. But we also know it's a jungle out there. There are no safeguards. So can I propose one or two things, and apologies if some of these are already happening, but it really is hard to keep up with such a rapidly changing landscape. And these really are just suggestions. I think, perhaps you do, I don't know, think at some point soon, we'll have to do something maybe a bit different to safeguard our work. That is, keep it safe for children and safe from governments, clamping down on the internet and using child safety as one of the reasons. I think that's possibly uh, on the agenda. This association, this one today, of all our production houses, big, medium-sized, small, and tiny, one-room, one-person affairs, could give what is, in effect, some kind of approval stamp, call me utopian, declaring these output, outputs as safe. We would need to lobby the main sites, that's to say the YouTubers, etc., the YouTube, etc., where we put our content to see if they can create clearly labeled sections where all our material from all our different companies goes. We'll need the airtime and internet space to explain to parents and children that we have, in effect, created a mega site for online child-safe media, a new kind of online children's channel, if you like, where our outputs sit. 
it should be possible then for parents to use a much simpler and more accurate kind of filter on computers and phones which enables them to make a clear decision whether the output their children will watch online is, or indeed is not, restricted to our children's channel. And parents and children together can decide at what age of child their home restriction is lifted. This would inevitably, I think, entail some kind of a body to oversee it, yes, and if we don't want this to be imposed by government and stuffed full of people who we have no say in how they're chosen, then we should move quickly to create our own overseeing body and choose such people in a democratic way. In other words, I'm thinking of a strong but democratic self-regulating body. All utopian, perhaps, not for immediately, but I would suggest perhaps soon. In the meantime, let the great Buster Keaton ride on. He was one of the greatest media practitioners of all time. Someone who could use his body, his face, his surroundings, his costumes, and all the objects around him, and the technology of his day to produce pleasure and delight for all of us, children especially. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. Before the game starts, uh, it's a great beginning of a sentence, isn't it? Uh, before the game starts, I think we have time for questions if people want to ask questions. Uh, I'm chairing this session to keep it nice and simple. There are people in blue who have microphones. You can see them. Right, no, that's not a microphone. There we are. There's a, there's a microphone. Hello. My question is, you're suggesting at the end, that was a really inspirational talk, thank you very much. And um, what you say about not too much regulation from government is really important. But then at the end, you're suggesting we create a self-regulatory body where we decide what's safe. How are you going to be sure that the people from us who decide what's safe do what you want, is, which is, seems to be not to be too safe? Yeah. All self-regulating, right, so governments will want to regulate, is my argument. There are several ways of opposing that. One is to, you know, be Guy Fawkes, which, you know, I'm not going to sit here and suggest. <laughs> it's all right, I know, I know my, my politics. Um, yeah, um, so leaving that to one side, I'm coming up with a practical alternative. It's exactly the same one that was posed by Leveson, so we've been down this track. All right, so I'm suggesting the alternative is to self-regulate, and you don't self-regulate with the barons of the industry, you self-regulate democratically. And so you make your democracy the safeguard. So rather than saying, okay, so will they have the, 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 the CEOs of the major media companies being the self-regulators, I'm saying precisely the opposite. I'm saying that we have popular self-regulation as the only solution. I don't think Leveson went that far, but that was, that was how I envisage it as a possible solution. I suspect, and it's only a suspicion, that it's only a matter of time before governments around the world, and we know that obviously in countries like China they already impose certain regulations on the use of the internet, that other forms of regulation are going to appear, and quite often it's going to be child safety that is used, and then in turn that will be used to regulate the children's output, making it more safe than the way in which we make it safe, which is our own self-regulating guides about appropriateness. Yeah? So I think the only way we can do that is to get there before them. Okay? We steal their thunder. That's my thought. Anybody else? Is, is it, what's the time? <laughs> Just in case, people, if people now, instead of my father's tuchus stuck in the chair, you've got the opposite. You've got the itchy tuchus that is dying to get away. Mike, Michael. Mike, yes, hello. Founder Mike. Hello. <laughs> it's something I think this, this conference have discussed before about how do you make sure that we, we take ownership of, of, of the problem. Have you got any examples of where democratic self-regulation actually works that we can, from a different sector, a different industry, a different country, where you can actually say that that's something that you should model it on? Apart from the UCS sit-in of 1971, when the workers took over... Um, the shipyards, not immediately, but I will keep thinking while we have some other questions. But um, 
I, perhaps my utopian way of thinking was that we could think about it, maybe you could think about it over the next two days, but I mean, it is possible to elect delegates, and I know it sounds all terribly formal and all that stuff that, you know, about the amendment to the motion and the motion of the amendment, and are we voting on the amendment or are we voting on the motion, all that stuff, but the alternative is always worse. You know, I think that the big stick will come. I don't know whether it's going to come next year, five years or ten years, but I think it will come, and so it's up to us to devise it. There are all sorts of patterns of uh, work control, if you like, that have existed in the past. Mostly they've been stamped on. Uh, teachers created a form of it with what was called the Language in the National Curriculum Project, uh, which was going very well with lateral and lateral thinking, lateral structures, and also what was called cascade thinking, where you had ideas coming from downwards and then chewed over down below. Um, so there are various things that are coming to mind, but you know, you're all very clever people. Uh, I know you, obviously we all like spending our time thinking up gags and wonderful images and trying to move our audiences and so on, but there are times when we have to sort of take control of our work process as well, which I know is a very cerebral way of thinking about it and can be quite tiresome. Um, another group now I'm thinking about is the Authors Licensing and Copyright Society, which was set up by a writer, Chris Barlas, along with others, where they said we have to take control of the way in which our stuff is used. And so that's why you have to pay for photocopying. Thank you. <laughs> ka -ching. Um, So that was an example of writers taking control of their work, if you like. But that's delegate, that's voted for, there's a, a yearly a AGM, so that might be a, a, a tiny little blueprint that came to mind, the ALCS. Yeah. Uh, Michael? Yes. Greg, Greg, down here in the front. Greg, down the front. Hi, Greg. Do you not think it more likely that actually the CEOs are going to be involved? Um, so somewhere between your government thing, and we do know, I mean, we, we have a message coming from a government minister tomorrow which is talking about the internet safety strategy. Uh -huh. that, that, that is a plan, and it's going I to come out. must have seen it in my crystal ball. Yes. But do you not think it more likely that the people who run Facebook and YouTube and so on are going to run scared from the public who are beginning to rebel against the fact that they rig elections? Shorthand. Uh, and Controversial. And damage our kids. Shorthand. Yeah. Are they not, is, is business not going to lead them down a road, a road similar to the one you suggested? Bertolt Brecht wrote a poem where he said, General, I'm paraphrasing, your tank is very clever, but it has one fault. It needs a driver. And by that he meant, in his own elliptical way, is that no matter what people decided that tank should do, it needed a human being inside it to make it work. So no matter what the YouTube bosses or the Facebook bosses or any of the, the digital output, um, the people who run those digital outputs want and say, they can't do it without the creative people who are in this room. We, we, we're the people who make the stuff. So this is where you have to exert the power of what you make and do. I mean, thinking all the way back, it's quite hard to think of it, but people like Douglas Fairbanks, and Bette Davis, they created United Artists. The reason why they did was because they wanted to break the power of the movie moguls who were deciding how the material that they were producing should be distributed. So they created what was in effect, I mean, it's so mad to think about it when you look at Bette Davis and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and the rest of them, but they created what was in a sense a workers' collective of actors who then determined how the films were distributed, totally against the wishes of the Lord's mighty of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and the rest of it, because they knew they had to do it with Bette Davis and Douglas Fairbanks and the rest of them. So it's not beyond our capabilities to say, well, you might sit up there and decide the way you're going to chop this stuff up, but actually we have ourselves. So. It is possible to do that. I mean, far be it from me to foment revolution here, you know. You can imagine how disinclined I am to do it. But um, <laughs> even so, the point is there is a serious issue. Well, of course, what the government do, and what governments always do, is they pick off the leaders. They try and get them in and say, well, how can we carve this world up the way we want to? All right? So, of course, yes, we need those technologies and those platforms. Perhaps sometimes we say we need them more than we do. But anyway, that's what we say we do. But 
The point is, they need us. The general needs the bloke driving the tank, heaven forbid, but he does. So I think, you know, we have to assert, I mean, in the, all the people in this room, I don't know what percentage of the industry you represent, but you seem like quite a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, I don't suppose there are many, I'm only guessing, but I don't suppose there's much media output for kids that is not represented in some way or another by someone in this room. Perhaps I'm missing something, but I don't know. I mean, is there somebody terribly important out there who's not here? I mean, <laughs> are you hitting them? Where are uh, I mean, not represented, I mean. So, you know, this, this organization has potential power to say this is what we want and how we want it. All you have to do is put your noddles together and decide how it is. You create a, a, a study group a commission first, and then for it to report back. Sorry to be very bureaucratic, but um, I sometimes work with the NUT. Um, <laughs> I know how these things work. Um, so um, that's how I would say, yes, I'm sure, the leaders of the, of the, the people who run, the run all the media companies will be asked into 10 Downing Street, sat down and said, what are you going to do about the fact that people put up F this and F that, and there's uh, whatever kind of things, people advocating terrorism, what are you going to do about it if you don't want us to close you down? They will then say, we'll do this, this, and this, and then they'll go, oh, goodness me, and there are children, and to a certain extent I did myself today, oh, goodness, there are children, and then they'll start looking at the children's output, and there'll be a children's commissioner or somebody like it, the children's czar, who will then say, you can do this and you can do that. And if you want to avoid that, then you have to show your own muscle, to put a macho image to it. That's my feelings. So, Michael Alan Davidson, uh, the Equity Company. Um, I think there's another aspect which hasn't been addressed, which many people would address uh, as a dynamic that it plays. Um, and one is specifically the, the potential for liability um, for stuff that is done. Liability by the uh, publishers, who claim they're not publishers, but people like Facebook and so on. And I think there's a second dynamic that plays, which we've seen very clearly recently, which is advertisers. And we've seen uh, the damage to um, YouTube uh, from some of the things that have happened, which effectively has led them to cut back on a lot of the advertising uh, capable content yeah. um, online. So could, would you address that in this term? Because uh, that, there we're getting away from a political solution. Right. We're getting into a commercially driven solution. And you sure. can argue whether or not that's good or bad. I don't think we can assume that we can rely on advertisers to regulate our output, and nor should we. Children, children are our future. They are our collective responsibility. I reluctantly accept the need for advertising to finance this thing, but in an ideal world, we would have the kind of funding that goes on in Canada that I know of. I'm not sure about Australia. Um, but certainly in Canada, with, with someone Canadian can mis tell me otherwise, uh, that we need, we need a lot of state funding because this is the future. The, these, it's like air, you know, you safeguard air and you would do, ask a state company to do it. So safeguard children, well, yeah. But at the same time, not hand over all the power to say, you know, um, the Secretary of State for Education, who after all, one point or another, was somebody called Michael Gove. I mean. <laughs> No, so it, it doesn't have to go hand in hand. People always think state control means that there's somebody sitting in Whitehall, uh, that that's what state control means. It, it doesn't if you assert yourself as the producers. that was both entertaining and thought-provoking. But now, to give a proper Sheffield thank you to you, Michael, I'd like to invite onto the stage the Lord Mayor of Sheffield, Majid Majid. Hey, how are you doing? Hey! <laughs> better watch your, your necklace, Majid. Yeah, very good. Thank you very much. Check. Hello, 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 hello. And yes, I really just wanted to, uh, first of all, say a massive uh, thank you for not only a really enlightening, entertaining, inspirational and keynote, but also for being a real, honestly, just being a real champion for children's education all across the country. So if you all join me, give me a massive round of applause to him. 
And we've also got you a couple of um, Sheffield gifts, oh, so wow. you never forget us. It's a nice so, and could be a surprise. Cutlery. So, <laughs> possibly. Industrial gag there for you yeah. folks. But um, on that note, I just really want to also say a massive welcome to all the delegates who've come from across the country and some parts of the world. I really, guys, hope you have a lovely, amazing time. And as well as, of course, learning new things, exchanging skills. Really just have a lot of fun and I really hope you actually go out there and actually get to experience all the weird and wonderful places and people of Sheffield. So all the best of luck for the next couple of days and I look forward to seeing you guys soon. Thank you very much.